0: Hello, and welcome to a Carrick Institute podcast. Today we've got it to the vault and have a recording of Dr. Carrick speaking about the basal ganglia and slow pursuits. If you would like to learn more about the clinical neuroscience programs or some of our specialty programs like the movement disorders program, please visit carrickinstitute.com. Hello, we are going to continue talking about uh, smooth eye movements, both pursuits, the optokinetic uh, responses, and we've been asked to talk about the basal ganglia, the question being, we utilize uh, pursuit eye movements we use fast eye movements as well in the treatment of patients that have basal ganglionic disorders such as dystonia different frontal lobe activities and the question is you know how does the basal ganglia work in regards to these these eye functions how is it that you are able to take somebody who's got a movement disorder and then give them eye movements and the movement disorder clears up well i'd be glad to talk about that uh, and we're going to talk about it in a fair bit of detail, and then I'll give you a clinical spin on the uh, on the activity. Last um, week, we talked about the, fl- uh, the frontal eye fields and the supplementary eye fields. And we know that both of these areas located in the frontal lobes are involved in the smooth pursuit eye movement uh, generation. And we also know, of course, that they're also involved in the generation of uh, saccades. So we know that the pursuit area of the uh, frontal eye fields is different than the saccade area and we left that talking about some link between the frontal lobe and the basal ganglia. So we know that the basal ganglia and the thalamus are involved in smooth pursuit eye movements. That we know uh, for sure. We know as well that both uh, the smooth pursuit eye movements as well as the saccade Uh, eye movement generators in the frontal eye fields are going to project to the basal ganglia, they project to the caudate nucleus. So as they project to the striatum, the caudate nucleus, they project to separate areas in the caudate. And this would make sense that the pursuit areas in the caudate are different than the projections of the uh, the, uh, saccadic activity to the caudate nucleus. We also know that both the fast eye movements, that is to say the saccades, and the smooth pursuit eye movement um, areas or the divisions of the frontal eye fields are gonna receive different inputs to the thalamus. So when we look at the basal ganglia, we know that there's uh, an organization, if you would, of different areas of the caudate nucleus specific to both fast and slow movements and there's different projections from the thalamus to the frontal eye fields that are very, very uh, specific to either the psychotic activity or the smooth pursuit eye activity we know that the thalamus itself is going to be the regulator it's going to be the the monitor of smooth pursuit eye movements and it does this by providing a discharge uh, to the cortex at a certain frequency that is going to allow us to fire and, uh, and grab targets and and other types of activities. Well, let's go a little bit further and look at the frontal eye fields and their projections. We know when we think about frontal lobe, we know that it's going to uh, be activated uh, through the mesencephalic activators that fire the ventral caudate that fires that frontal lobe and it comes back to the dorsal caudate. Well, the same thing happens for both the smooth and uh, slow pursuits and the, uh, and the fast psychotic eye activities, but also the frontal eye fields are going to project um, right into the nucleus reticularis tegmenti pontus. And the, uh, this is the NRTP, if you would, the nucleus reticularis tegmenti pontus. And then we're going to have uh, also some activity that comes from the uh, middle temporal visual area and the medial superior temporal visual area. These guys are gonna to project to the dorsolateral pontine nuclei. Now, the dorsolateral ponti nuclei is gonna project only to one area. You can imagine where it's gonna to project, to the cerebellum. So when we look at the, uh, these uh, relay areas from the temporal lobe, we go, boy, this is very, very exciting because the, the medial temporal uh, projections as well as the uh, medial superior temporal visual area are going to give information to excite the cerebellar output As a consequence of their integration in the dorsolateral pontine nuclei so when we look at the afferents um, that are located in the cerebellum of course these are old structures so it's going to go to the midline it's going to go to the vermis uh, we refer to the area in the cerebellum that receives this information as the oculomotor vermis or uh, lobules uh, 6 and 7, if you look at, a, at an atlas. And we also have integration, of course, in the paraflocculus. This is the area that is associated with these midline structures It also is the area that's associated with the integration of motor commands that are going to give you spinal stability and spinal movement intrinsically. It's going to allow you to have shunt stabilization to suffer the activities of uh, spurt activities. Now when we look at activation of the dorsolateral pontine nuclei, this is really going to allow us a role of maintaining uh, steady activities of smooth pursuit eye movements. We know that when you have uh, lesions in the uh, dorsolateral uh, ponti nuclei in a monkey model, for instance, that you are going to uh, get an ipsilateral deficit of smooth pursuit eye movements in that monkey. So it's very, very interesting, and then we also look at the cerebellum, and this is something that is very exciting, I think, to to chiropractors that uh, manipulate joints and stimulate the cerebellum to realize that you also have integrators that are going to be related to these eye functions when comparing one side to another. So when we look at def- deficits, of course in a monkey model when we have lesions in the, um, in the dorsolateral pontine nuclei, we're going to have these smooth pursuit eye movement de- deficits. Well in, in reality, uh, most people don't have complete lesions, they have partial lesions or they may have physiological lesions. So that's it may, you, you may get a different speed or ability to, uh, to catch a pursuit. And what happens is then these individuals have got to catch up to their deficits by using uh, saccades. And you'll get some saccadic intrusions in a pursuit or you get saccadic pursuits where when you fall behind the target, you've just got to catch up. Well, at very, very slow speeds, you might not see it. But as the speed gets faster, you may see a deficit uh, on one side or the other. And the lesions that are caused with the dorsolateral ponti nuclei lesions, the areas that project and integrate to the cerebellum, are going to result in an ipsilateral deficit of these individual uh, smooth pursuits. We know uh, that the uh, the areas of the nervous system in the nucleus reticularis tegmenti pontis, that's the NRTP, it's going to be projecting directly into the cerebellar um, vermis into the oculomotor vermis if you would. It also is going to uh, project into the into the parafloculus. Now when we look at the projections from the um, from from the areas of the nucleus reticularis tegmenti pontus this is very important because this is the area that projects into the cerebellum that allows us to to encode the acceleration of your eye and Of course, when you encode acceleration, this would give a very large role of that nucleus reticularis tegmenti pontus in that initiation of smooth pursuit activities. when we look right in the cerebellar cortex itself, that midline area in the vermis, the flocculonodular area, that uh, oculomotor vermis, these are, are really the, uh, the areas that, that we know a lot about in regards to the generation of smooth pursuit. Eye, eye movements. These have been studied very, very extensively in uh, lesion studies uh, involving uh, primates, primarily monkeys, such that lesions uh, in the floccular nodular area, lesions in the vermal oculomotor vermis, are going to cause uh, deficits in smooth pursuit eye movements. So smooth pursuit eye movements are very rich for us to examine. We know that the oculomotor vermal lesions in monkeys are going to lead to Uh, a a smooth pursuit reduction in gain that really is going to be seen in the first 100 uh, milliseconds. and This is very important, it gives us that latency. Also, we see the same thing in in humans. We know that the oculomotor vermis is going to project to the the bottom or the caudal portion of the vestigium. This gives us an area of output that is referred to as the vestigial oculomotor region. And if you have a uh, a lesion in this oculomotor vermal output, you're gonna get a uh, smooth pursuit eye movement pathology or deficit to the contralateral side. So it's very important when we look at our differentiation, we know that we can have ipsilateral uh, types of pathologies and the ipsilateral pathologies are going to give us uh, an indication that we've got a you know, problem in the dorsal lateral pontine nuclei whereas lesions in the oculomotor vermis will give you a lesion to the contralateral side so when we look at cerebellar output we think of output that's going to go to the contralateral frontal lobe uh, and, or, or the contralateral parietal cortex which would give lesions that are going to the opposite side of the output of the cerebellum whereas lesions that have an input to the cerebellum after they're, they're there will give you an ipsilateral type of uh, pathology. Now, we know that the the activity that we see in the cerebellum is, is fairly complex, but again, it's fairly simple if we break it down. If we look at the floccular nodular area, we have projections directly to the vestibular nuclei, and to the vestibular nuclei, we have activation of intrinsic spinal muscles as well as eye activity. So it is in the Vestibular nuclei, where the smooth pursuit eye motion signals are going to be generated, to reach the oculomotor nuclei, both in the pontine output of six and of the third and fourth in the in the mesencephalon. When we look at the at the at the brain and the activation of the smooth pursuit uh, eye motions, we think of parallel pathways that are going to come from the cortex, from the frontal eye fields, as well as from the uh, the temporal lobes. We know that these par- parietal temporal structures, that is to say the medial temporal output and the uh, the activity that we're going to be seeing in the medial superior temporal visual area, that these pathways are going to project to the pontine nuclei, and from the pontine nuclei we're going to send afferents to the nodular area. It's uh, interesting, I think, to me as a clinician to realize that the interneurons in the projections from the parietal temporal areas are also the neurons that are going to be the interneurons in other cerebellar output and other descending uh, cortical effects or to say it differently when we look at motor commands uh, for your arms and your legs, these volitional activity, they're going to use interneurons that also are utilized in the the generation of smooth pursuit eye movements. Now when we think of the parietal temporal areas we think of memory location geography and this is a little bit different than the higher executive functions of the frontal eye fields the frontal eye fields are going to be sending their signals uh, via the uh, the nucleus uh, reticularis and when we look at the nucleus reticularis tegmenti pontis this is the area that's going to uh, in turn send the afferents to the flocculonodular area. So when we look at this integration, we realize that the frontal eye fields are going to send information to the flocculonodular area via their, uh, their integration in the, uh, in the NRTP, in the Nucleus Reticularis Tegmenti Pontus. When we look at the, this information that affects the oculomotor vermis and these activities, we find that there's a possibility that if you've got a lesion in one area of the brain, that the other area is going to be able to, to carry on. So we have a little bit of redundancy, although the, the integrity of each system is a little bit different. So let's look at the, um, the different types clinically of, of things we can see with smooth pursuit eye movements. And let's look at the nystagmus that you're going to see when you hold a, a stripe a uh, striped uh, band in front of a patient's face or you have a projection of an optokinetic stimulus. We know that the optokinetic nystagmus is complex. We use this clinically. We also know that we're gonna have a an ability to, to store what we call a velocity storage mechanism of optokinetic nystagmus. And we know that the velocity storage mechanism is really an indirect mechanism. And we know that in the basal ganglia, There are direct and indirect pathways. The direct pathway is such that we have a link of the frontal cortex to the striatum to the basal ganglia, which is going to inhibit the thalamic output. The indirect pathway is going to utilize the subthalamic nucleus and then wind back up to the globus pallidus uh, output. When we look at the activity of, uh, or the concept of, the storage of speed, velocity storage component, we realize that this is a component that is integral in in the uh, central integrative state of all of these brain stem neurons in the reticular formation uh, that are going to be utilized as interneurons in the frontal cerebellar pathways and pathways from the cerebellum back to the individual uh, cortex so sometimes when we look at this simplicity we forget that these individual brain stem pathways and are, are themselves under uh, control of the brain, of the cerebral cortex itself. For instance, if you've got uh, lesions at the back of the brain in the uh, occipital lobes, you can lead to a loss of uh, optokinetic responses in your patient. So uh, you're going to have to see things in order to generate these responses, even though we think of the pursuits being more parietal, the saccades being more frontal, you need the entire brain be intact. Or to say differently, clinically, optokinetic responses and smooth pursuit eye movements, as well as the psychotic eye movements that are quick, are very good windows of global brain function. And by looking at the individual functions associated with the different types of eye movements, we can pretty well localize an area of brain that has the greatest probability of being involved so let's look at what you see for instance when light comes into your eyes you have a target coming into your eyes and you activate retinal uh receptors the fibers from the the retina itself are going to terminate in the in the nuclei of the accessory optic tract and this accessory optic tract is of course in the in the brainstem and and you're not only going to have activity in these brainstem nuclei but you're going to have retinal uh, afferents are going to fire uh, the nucleus of the optic tract itself and the nucleus of the optic tract is the generator if you would of the uh, complex that is referred to as the pre-tectal nuclear complex so both the accessory uh, optic tract and the nucleus of the optic tract are gonna be receiving information from the human brain, from the cerebral cortex. Now, when we look at the, these uh, generators, they're in the mesencephalon, they're in the midbrain, but they receive activity from the brain itself. So both the accessory optic tract and the nucleus of the optic tract are gonna to project to brainstem areas that are a little bit uh, further south, more caudal to them, uh, such as the, the pontine uh, nuclei, the nucleus reticularis um, tegmentus pontus is gonna get it, the inferior olive is gonna get it, the vestibular nuclei are gonna be activated, the nucleus prepositus hypoglossi. all of these integrated neurons that you know are involved in other types of functions, of brainstem functions, of cardiovascular uh, functions, uh, breathing functions, uh, a variety of cerebellar integrating functions and, and motor functions are activated as a consequence of retinal activation. So you now start to see, well, hey, this is, this is really interesting. I could use light or visual stimulation or targets or targets that are moving or targets that are steady. I can use targets that the person has to saccade to. I can use targets that the person can follow. I can do an optokinetic response and reflexogenically activate them. And because of the richness of their bombardment into the brainstem nuclei, I can have a variety of symptomatology that can be decreased or increased. I also can have a variety of diagnostic and therapeutic applications uh, that I can use that is going to increase my ability to serve uh, humankind. Well, it's very, very important to for us to realize clinically that both the the neurons that are in the uh, in, in the optic tract nucleus, as well as neurons that are in the accessory optic tract uh, nucleus in the mesencephalon, that they have large receptive fields. they they're they resp- they are going to be fired very, very easily, and they respond best to a uh, stimulus that is moving. Uh, they'll have a response that is best to movement that's in a certain direction, either to the right or to the left, and they respond best to, to uh, targets that have got a texture that the person can say, hey boy, that's, that's a little bit different. We know, for instance, that the vestibular neurons are so integral in spinal mechanisms and in eye outputs, and when your head turns uh, with an angular acceleration or a linear uh, acceleration, that these neurons are fired reflexogenically from otoliths and from labyrinthine system to evoke different motor responses. We know that they respond not only to that uh, vestibular stimulation when there is not fixation of a target, the person is not looking at something, but also these vestibular neurons are going to are going to be able to respond to large moving visual stimuli that's involved in in optokinetic nystagmus so when you do an optokinetic type of stimulation you are stimulating the vestibular nuclei they're very very powerful activities so when we look at the vestibular nuclear activity that is generated with optokinetic stimulation we also realize that we're going to have a slow phase eye velocity change that's going to occur in parallel uh, to that uh, vestibular nuclear activity So when we look at the slow phase activity, we also think that in our mind, the vestibular nuclei are being activated. If we have a parallel problem where the slow pursuit is different, then we look at the vestibular nuclei and we think, hey, you know, maybe that is not firing as well. When we look at the optokinetic nystagmus and the role of the cerebellum, we know that there's not a major role of the cerebellum in the mediation of the indirect component of the of the optokinetic uh, nystagmus or to say it differently in the animal models at least if you take the cerebellum out of a out of a cat you don't really affect those optokinetic responses uh, so very very uh, much we know that the the uvula and the nodulus of the cerebellum uh, seem to have an inhibitory effect on optokinetic activities and when we look at the uh, a person that has um, a lesion of the of their cerebellum or in an animal model, such as a monkey, if you, if you cause a central lesion in the cerebellum, that we, we really uh, maximize the indirect component, which would mean to say that we're going to lose our inhibitory effect. If the nodulus and the uvula of the cerebellum have an inhibitory effect to optokinetic nystagmus, a lesion of those would uh, lose the inhibition and the patient might have a periodic alternating nystagmus because of the visual surround field. We have the ability of our patients to be able to follow a target. And when we look at following of a target, we look at a response and the response is a following response, and we call it the ocular following responses. We know that the pathway of the ocular following responses includes the um, the medial superior temporal visual area. We also affect the dorsolateral pontine nucleus. We affect the ventral parafloculus. And uh, what are we saying here? We're basically saying that the ocular following responses utilize the interneurons that are involved in smooth pursuit eye movements. So when we look at the uh, medial superior temporal visual Fields, th- these are the areas in, in this temporal lobe, parietal temporal lobe, that is really going to take the dynamic properties of the visual stimulus, the movement of that visual system. It needs to be actually encoded. So we can encode it, we think of where the, uh, the geography is of the individual activity, and then we can have a motor response so that we have encoding before we can actually have a, uh, a motor response. And that motor response is is going to be associated with with a different area of the of the brain itself and that different area of the brain itself is going to be the area that is going to be associated with the pontine integration into the flocculonodular area itself so let's look at what happens clinically you get a patient comes in and you're going to examine their uh, their smooth pursuit uh, activities their ability to generate these smooth pursuits now We know that in patients that have deficits of smooth pursuit eye movements, that they may have a parietal lobe lesion or that they may have a frontal lobe lesion. Or to say different, both parietal lobes and frontal lobes can lead to deficits in the smooth pursuit eye motions. We know that when your patients, your humans, have lesions in the medial temporal region, then you get a deficit that is very, very similar to the experimental deficits that are seen in in primates. So that when you have a stimulus that moves in the contralateral visual field, that is to say the visual field that is opposite to the lesion in the temporal lobe, that this movement cannot be tracked independent of the direction of the movement. Whereas the person can give a saccade to that defective area. So the individual uh, is going to have a target, for instance, that's moving from right to left side when they move from right to left side uh, with a lesion in the right uh, medial temporal uh, area you're not going to be able to to follow that but you're going to be able to generate a saccade that's going to pop up there because the frontal lobe would certainly be intact now if you look at the the uh, medial superior temporal uh, optic output Lesions in these areas lead to an ipsaversive deficit that is going to be independent of the location of the target on your eye, on the target of your, uh, of your retina. Also, we find that lesions of the frontal eye fields will lead to an ipsaversive deficit in smooth pursuit eye movements. It leads to a controversive loss of psychotic activities, but an ipsilateral smooth pursuit eye movement uh, deficit, so that when we look at the medial medial temporal (coughs) visual area and the medial superior temporal visual area, we get certain types of deficits. The type of deficits you have are are pretty simple to figure out with the medial temporal and the medial superior temporal outputs, uh, as well as the outputs for the frontal eye fields and the supplementary eye fields. These are going to go down to the, the pons. They're going to pass through the internal capsule so that uh, you're going to get an ipsuversive deficit. Uh, you're going to get that with any of these pathways, or you're going to get the ipsiversive deficit when you have individuals that have lesions in their internal capsule as a consequence of stroke or, uh, you know, this common type of lenticulostriate artery uh, stroke. The pons is so very, very important. And when you have lesions in pontine nuclei, these are these... Second-order neurons or tertiary neurons and descending pathways, or in the ascending pathways from the cerebellum and the vestibular system. In any event, if you have lesions in, in the pons, you are going to see in your patients an ipsiversive um, deficit of smooth pursuit eye movement. So, uh, predominantly ipsiversive. And then, when you have uh, lesions, for instance, bilaterally in the pontine nuclei. You're not gonna lose the smooth pursuit eye movements. They're gonna be just not, uh, they're just not gonna be good. So uh, you need the ponti nuclei to, to integrate the smooth pursuit eye movements, but you don't lose smooth pursuit eye movements when you've got lesions of them. They just become a little bit deficient. And this um, is also such that we remember that these these pre-pontine areas, the nucleus reticulatus, tegmenti pontis, this is involved in the generation of the smooth pursuit eye movements. Now, when we look at uh, the, well, for instance, the supernuclear palsies that have been studied very, very well, we're going to expect to see smooth pursuit deficits in in those. We're going to see smooth percept activities in anything that causes uh, a pontine lesion, uh, such as... uh, you know, spinocerebellar atrophy, uh, these uh, sac types of atrophy, uh, these spinocerebellar ataxias, anything that causes a lesion in the pons are going to be developed in these, these different aberrancies of the, the pontine nuclei itself. So we know that we can have uh, aberrancies in the cerebral cortex. We know that we can have aberrancies in the pons that are going to result in, in a variety of uh, problems when we come into the frontal uh, eye fields, or the supplementary eye fields, or the medial temporal areas, the temporal parietal cortex. Uh, we're going to have ipsiversive uh, deficits when we look at uh, aberrancies that are in the medial uh, temporal areas. We're going to have a contralateral visual field uh, deficit with the maintenance of uh, good psychotic integrity then we get into the cerebellum which is much more complex so let me talk about the the cerebellum and let's talk about the integration clinically of how to uh, use the system and how to understand uh, optokinetic nystagmus and and other types of things that are very exciting uh, for us so that we can understand what to do to help our uh, patients then we'll talk about it couple of different eye movements, and and on and on we go. Well, listen, thanks so much for giving me these topics to talk about because I really uh, enjoy talking about them. Uh, There's are things that I do virtually every day. The detail that I'm giving you is probably greater than the detail you'll find in a, in a regular text, but if you really want to be a world expert, then you should know this. But uh, just to familiarize yourself with this complex system is something that I think uh, can be handy. And if you can follow along and, and maybe have an atlas or think of what's happening, I think you'll be rewarded and be able to understand some things that are a little more complex, but more importantly, be able to be able to to think of something that you can do to help people. And of course, use the changes in these systems as a window of the change of the person's anatomy. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you soon. If you enjoyed this podcast or would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on CarrickInstitute.com.